on this episode of No Truths Barred. I dedicate a part of this episode to talking about the life and the impact of Malcolm X, his impact on me personally and his impact internationally. Also, I get into the conflict, the conundrum of black creatives and black business owners stealing and practicing predatory behavior towards black other black creatives and black business owners. This is a problem that's preponderant throughout our community at the highest levels as in the Joe Budden podcast and in the other many facets as well. Make sure you listen, like, comment, and subscribe. Thank you. Welcome back to a brand new episode of No Truce Bard, the best up and coming podcast on the internet. And I am your host, Hoyt Kuwaku Timmons. And I want to thank you guys for joining me again for a brand new episode of No Truce Bard. And like I always love to state, at the very beginning of each episode, if you've missed any of the previous 64 episodes, those episodes can be found on Spotify. Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, and YouTube. And what I'm going to do with the YouTube channel is I'm going to actually take a lot of the audio that I have because there was a long time for this podcast existence that I did strictly audio. I didn't have any any visuals. So what I'm going to go back and do is start to take a lot of that audio that I have and I'm going to put it up on YouTube. So if you guys don't like to go to SoundCloud, if you don't like to go to Spotify, if you don't like to go to Google Podcasts, you can go ahead on YouTube and you can listen to the audio, click a like, leave a comment, subscribe, because I have some really some real good gems and some good guests on some of those older episodes that don't really have the visuals. So I'm going to be going back over the next few weeks because 64, well, I think around episode 59 or 60 is when I started getting on YouTube. So 50 other episodes, that's a lot of episodes to have to upload. So bear with me. You might see one new or two new audios a week that I'll decide, you know, that I think people need to hear or I think could be really good for the platform and for engagement and to kind of boost subscribers on the uh, on the YouTube channel. So with that said, make sure you're following me on Instagram at Hoy H-O-Y-T underscore Kuwaku, K-W-A-K-U underscore Timmons, that's T-I-M-M-O-N-S. Also, make sure you follow me on TikTok. I'm on TikTok at No Truths Barred Podcast. So I'm putting up stuff on the TikTok page as well. That's getting some pretty good engagement. Uh, what else? Also, next week, I will not be doing an episode of No Truths Barred, but I have a very good reason why I will not be doing the episode. Essentially, I'm actually going to be a guest on uh, a sister's podcast who follows me on Instagram. I follow her. She puts up a lot of great content. Uh, she's a fan of some of my content as well. And her podcast, which is, um, let me shout them out real quick. Uh, True, what is it? True Talk Podcast. So the True Talk Podcast is based out of London and Wales, and it's her and four other co-hosts. So uh, she invited me on. So next Wednesday, I'll be going live uh, 5 p.m. 
um, Eastern Standard Time, uh, 10 p.m. UK time. So if you know anybody in the UK, uh, tell them to, uh, to follow and subscribe to the True Talk Podcast YouTube channel. Also subscribe to uh, their, um, I think they're on Spotify. So make sure you, you listen to them on Spotify. And please check out the episode that I shall be on as well. And without further ado, I just want to hop into today's subject matter. Today is a really important day to me. It's a day that's, uh, it's a day that really shaped me, I will say, as an intellectual. And once again, let me preface this by saying, I want to become an intellectual. You know, I don't want to have like a hubris or whatever like that, that I'm smarter than everyone and I know more than everyone because we're all learning. Each one's each one. You know, we all have to, to figure out the world around us. So I'm going to put that out there so people not thinking that I'm trying to be pedantic or pretentious or anything like that. But the subject that I'm going to briefly talk about today, because I've, I've been noticing I've been kind of lengthy. So I'm going to try to shorten the podcast today and maybe just give you guys a quick 30 minute episode. Rock out with me and you can get up out of here. Anyway, this is an, an important day because the brother the activist, the scholar, I would say, the leader uh, that I'm going to talk about today is very near and dear to my heart. Today, if you don't know, is May 19th. May 19th is Malcolm X's birthday. And also what's special about May 19th is that my, Malcolm X is also a Taurus as well. I'm a Taurus. I'm an April Taurus. I was, bro I was born April 22nd. And the reason why I wanted to do this, this quick dedication. And I'm going to touch on a few other things as well before I get out of here tonight. But the reason why I wanted to speak on Malcolm X is because unlike most people, my introduction to, to civil rights, to uh, black nationalism, and even to pan-Africanism, it came to me through a different avenue. And I'll say the initial catalyst of my reverence for Malcolm X came from my mother. When I was uh, in kindergarten, I don't know if you guys know, you know, you might have to be a little bit older, 30 plus to know about this. But back in 1992, Spike Lee made a Malcolm X movie in which he casted Denzel Washington to uh, portray uh, Malcolm X. And I thought it was just like a, a, a brilliant uh, role. I think, uh, excuse me, I think Denzel Washington did phenomenal as Malcolm X. And so the reason that's significant is because when I was in kindergarten, my mother came, she picked me up, she took me out of school and she was like, hey, you're going to go, let me slide this webcam over as well, pardon me. But when I was in kindergarten, my mother said, you know, you're going to go, you're going to see this Malcolm X film. And I really had no con contextual knowledge at that particular point of who Malcolm X was. But when I saw the film, I was just in awe. Now, I was young. I didn't really have a lot of knowledge about the, the true history of Malcolm X, but that film has such a profound impact on me. And I put a status up on my Facebook today. Also, the Facebook is No Truths Bar Timmons, so make sure you follow the Facebook as well. So I put up a status on my Facebook today where I indicated that growing up, this is before I, I, I started to watch sports. This is before I started to really be a big fan of hip hop. This is before even to a degree that I would look up and kind of almost venerate thespians or actors and, and whatnot. Before all of that, the person that I idolized, the
the person that was synonymous to manhood, the person that was synonymous to the embodiment of the of the things that Christ said that we should have on this earth. You know, the the the, the embodiment of a lot of the aphorisms and axioms from such greats as Confucius and um, the 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 uh, Siddhartha Gautama, uh, the embodiment of all of that for me was Malcolm X. And that movie had a profound impact because it kind of set a template in my mind, though at that point, my initial introduction to Malcolm X is through this film. But the way I'm looking at it is that this is what a black man is supposed to be like, Malcolm X. It made such a profound impact on me that that, that was what I aspired to be like to a degree because I really wasn't into basketball back then. And so I never looked up to Michael Jordan. I didn't look up to Biggie. I didn't really look up to Tupac or any of these guys. I looked up to Malcolm X because that movie has such a profound impact on me that it, it kind of ingrained itself in my mind. And the other thing with that movie is that, uh, and I want to get into like some, some real information about um, Brother Malcolm as well. But <clears throat> the other thing about that particular film is that it made me curious about the conditions, the systemic racism, although I wouldn't have articulated it at five or six years old as uh, systemic racism. But that movie made me curious. It, it, it started a little bit of a fire. And I got to give that to my mother. And I, and I thank her for taking me to see that film because unlike most people for me growing up i always idolized malcolm and i didn't really start to learn about dr martin luther king really until i got into middle school of course i knew we had dr you know we had martin luther king day but i didn't really know a lot about him and he just wasn't an uh, individual that really pulled me in but as i got older I really had to appreciate Dr. King as well, because so many times what we like to do with many of our heroes of the past and sheroes of the past is like we want to make a dichotomy and we want to ask people to choose who would you whose side would you be on? Would you be on Dr. King's side? Would you be on Malcolm's side? Would you have been on W.E.B. Du Bois' side? Would you have been on Booker T. Washington's side? Would you have been on W.E.B. Du Bois' side or Marcus Garvey's side? Would you have been on A. Philip Randolph's side or Mark? You know, it could go on and on and on. And we always love to do that. And partly it's at the fault of the leaders because they did have, especially with W.E.B. Du Bois and Marcus Garvey. I mean, that was really ugly. That was that was just rough so it's partly because it happened but then we have such an elementary view of what these people contributed to our, our our liberation putting their lives on the line um knowingly or unknowingly and when you look have an elementary view it's like we form these these fictive dichotomies where we have to choose one or the other and we can't really appreciate what both of these people did. Because as much as a lot of really pro-black people like to turn their back on Dr. King, you know, keep in mind, 
we talk about the Black Panther Party and then you talk about SNCC. But if you look earlier before that, because a lot of people want to talk about, you know, I would have been with Malcolm because I'm 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 not down for violence. Well, both of those approaches, whether you're looking at Malcolm X's approach, which changed over time, like it didn't st it wasn't static. It changed over the course of his life. And if you look at Dr. Martin Luther King's approach, they both were very astute and there was an objective to both. Uh, <clears throat> when you look at Dr. King, keep in mind that one of the first four words that Dr. King ever wrote was in a book called Negroes with Guns. And this book was written by Robert F. Williams uh, out of North Carolina. And he was one of the first people to actually, uh, and if you look at the cover of the book, him and his wife at the time were both on the cover, both armed with, with guns. And he he had a standoff with the Klan fully armed. You know, this is a guy that ultimately had to, to go into to Cuba in, in exile uh, for his life, you know, and for his freedom to get out of the, the clutches, you know, of the United States. And he, he was over there and ran a radio show for years where he still continued to preach his message. And Dr. Martin Luther King did the foreword in his book. You know, Dr. Dr. Martin Luther King met, revered, and deeply respected Marcus Garvey. He, Dr. Martin Luther King, met and deeply respected and revered the uh, the Honorable Elijah Muhammad. Right. Same thing uh, with Kwame Nkrumah and Dr. King. And keep in mind that. The same Dr. King that we celebrate now, I know I'm talking about Malcolm and I'm kind of going off on a Dr. King tangent, but the same Dr. Martin Luther King now, this is the same Dr. Martin Luther King that J. Edgar Hoover and the FBI during COINTELPRO wrote letters to saying that they will expose him as a womanizer if he does not kill himself, if he does not commit suicide. Matter of fact, a letter was sent to his wife, Coretta Scott King, listing all of his incidents of, of womanizing and infidelity, all of this just to tarnish the image of Dr. Martin Luther King. So I say that to say the next time you're tempted to want to take these two great leaders, these two great heroes and turn them against one another and try to find these weak points and these flaws. Think about all that you don't know about Malcolm X. Think about all that you don't know about Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And once you take in the magnitude of what you truly don't know, then you have to begin to say, I need to study more and truly understand things that they were fighting for and what things they actually got accomplished. But that's neither here nor there. And I just wanted to point that out. It's something that we really have to stop when we talk about these two gentlemen. It truly is. But with Malcolm, I found his story so compelling. Uh, back in 2010 was when I started to read a lot more, well, probably a little bit earlier, maybe like 2008 or something like that. But anyway, that's when I really started to expand my point of reference and my, my, my knowledge base about uh, <clears throat> different leaders and different activists. And this is when I got into reading about Marcus Garvey, Marcus Garvey was born in St. Anne's Bay 
1887, August 17th, 1887, 1914, he started the Universal Negro Improvement Association. They had a black newspaper called the Negro Planet. They had a paramilitary unit for women called the Black Cross Nurses. The blacks, uh, a lot of a lot of scholars and a lot of the writers that you would see in, during the Harlem Renaissance, you know, got their start writing in Garvey's paper. Uh, also, he was he was connected and knew powerful scholars and historians such as Hubert Harrison out of Harlem, who they call Black Socrates. He also knew Arthur Schoenberg, the Cuban historian, the Afro-Cuban historian who the Schoenberg Institute is named after. Marcus Garvey knew him. He also knew Joel Augustus Rogers, who wrote Sex and Race, all three volumes, The World's Great Black Men of Color, volumes one and two. I have all of his work as well. So Marcus Garvey knew, the, knew these gentlemen. He was a heavy guy. Now, the reason why I bring him up is because he's a key figure when talking about Malcolm X, because you could make the argument that without Marcus Garvey, Malcolm X literally would not exist. So you may want to ask, well, how is that? How does Malcolm X not exist if there's no Marcus Garvey? Well, not, <clears throat> excuse me, Malcolm X's father and Malcolm X's mother were both members of the UNIA. And eventually, uh, Mark, excuse me, uh, Malcolm X's father was sent to Omaha, Nebraska to be the head of the UNIA, UNIA chapter out there. And one of the point I want to make about the UNIA is that a lot of times when we look at these documentaries, many times when we look at, excuse me, many times when we look at these documentaries about the UNIA, we always look at Harlem. It's always centered around Harlem. It's always centered around New Jersey. It's always centered around Philly, Detroit. But the reality is that the sec one of the, the second or third largest chapter of the UNIA was in Newport News, Virginia. We had UNIA chapters here in Virginia and all throughout the South. And in reality, there were more UNIA chapters in the South than there were in the North. And so I also mention that because amongst a lot of conscious people, there's this, this other problem of regionalism where we want to discredit the South. But there were many, many more uh, UNIA chapters in the South than there were in, in the North. And matter of fact, there was a mass massacre that occurred in Tennessee at a UNA chapter at the hands of the Ku Klux Klan, where does, uh, a few dozen people were, were murdered and lynched. So I wanted to put that out there. But literally, without Marcus Garvey, there is no Malcolm X. And a lot of the tenets of the UNIA, which was self-reliance, uh, repa repatriation to Africa, having an African uh, nation state. These were things that were preached and taught in the little household because before he became malcolm x he was malcolm little and many of these things were taught in that particular household and so malcolm to a degree we we often credit the noi and i'm not saying i'm not saying that we shouldn't credit the noi with malcolm waking up and becoming the man that he is because even the name shabazz was given to him by elijah muhammad so I'm not saying that we shouldn't credit him. Uh, <laughs> we shouldn't credit him and and mention uh, Elijah Muhammad. But you could argue that that seed for what Malcolm would become was kind of already there. It just needed to be nourished. It just needed to be watered. And I think the nation of Islam was that water to nourish that particular seed.
Um, pardon me, I'm looking at the time. So I think the I think the NOI was the the seed that uh, nourished that in Malcolm. But up, another point, too, with the UNIA that's really important, you could argue that almost every black nationalist organization after the UNIA was influenced by the UNIA. Because many of the followers, so for example, if we're talking about the Nation of Islam, we briefly have to talk about uh, the Moore Science Temple, which was started by Timothy Drew from Sampson, North Carolina, who later became Noble Drew Ali. And it was started in Newark, New Jersey. And he started the Canaanite Temple, you know, which became the Moore Science Temple of America. Their Bible was the Circle 7 Quran, and the Circle the Circle 7 Quran is actually based off of the Aquarian Gospel of Jesus Christ by Levi H. Dow Dowing. And that particular variant of the, the Bible, if you will, that or that form of the Bible, excuse me, is based on a lot of more esoteric kind of orientalist, orientalist information uh, at that time. Because when you look at the mid-1800s, I'll say all the way up through the earlier 20th century, so like maybe the first two decades of the 20th century, you saw a lot of rebellions against colonial powers. And it just so happened to be that many of the colonial powers, excuse me, many of the most of the resistance against the colonial powers was being spearheaded by Muslims. You know, Eric, uh, well, uh, excuse me. Um, Oh my goodness, I cannot remember this guy's name. What is his name? Uh oh, Blyden, Blyden, Blyden. Why do I want to say Eric? Pardon me, folks. If I had a pause there, I'm still giving over getting over COVID, so I'm having I can still have like brain fog. But Edward Wilmot Blyden, there it is. So <clears throat> Edward, Mil Edward Wilmot Blyden came from the Danish West Indies, and he actually went to uh, Liberia and he became a teacher in Liberia. And, you know, he also fought against the elite in, in Liberia, you know, Africans that were that came over from uh, a lot of a lot of the first Africans in the first either president or mayor of Monrovia. Either the, I, I think either the mayor of Monrovia or the first president of Liberia was from Richmond, excuse me. But a lot of those people that would have came to Liberia when it was formed would have came out of Virginia. But anyway, Edward Wilmot Blyden was fighting against the elite there, the, the mulatto uh, dominant class there. And that kind of put him in some hot water politically. Uh, he actually ran for president. He tried to run for president. He lost. And then he moved to Sierra Leone and spent the remainder of his life in Sierra Leone. But while Edward... The reason why Edward Wilmot Blyden is significant is because one of the things that Edward Wilmot Blyden uh, advocated for is that Islam was the black man's religion. And when you look at the fact that you have people like uh, Samore Torre that was fighting against the French, you had, you know, the powerful in the 1800s, you had the powerful Sokoto Caliphate, which would have been located in northern Nigeria. And then in Sudan, you had... Um, uh, what was the brother's name? Muhammad Ahmed, the Mahdi, or he claimed to be the Mahdi who fought against the British. 
And you had a lot of these instances of Islam uh, as well. And then, you know, prior to World War II, it wasn't in its prime, but you still had the Ottoman Empire as well that was still participating in, 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 the, slave, in the slave trade around the, the North Africa. Uh, over into the the west, excuse me, the eastern part of the Mediterranean, and so you still had the Ottomans there. You still had that presence of Islam as well, and a lot of the resistance to the emerging Western powers was kind of like juxtaposed by Islam. So, you know, this is not something I read anywhere. I just kind of think that possibly the the acceptance and the fervor for Islam, whether it be in the format of you know, Sunni Islam or Shi'i or like the Sufis, which you'll find a lot of Sufis in Senegal. Uh, these people called the Moradi sect in Senegal. They, they practice a form of Sufism in West Africa. Or if you're looking here in, the, in, in North America, where you have the Moor Science Temple and with the Moor Science Temple, uh, it is said I've seen in certain places that possibly uh Farad Muhammad, or they call Master Farad Muhammad, might have been a member of the Morris Science Temple. I'm not 100% uh, conclusive on that because I've seen some counter arguments as well. But Elijah Poole was a member of the Morris Science Temple. His name was Elijah Poole Bay. And then until he broke off and under the teachings of Master Farad Muhammad, uh, <laughs> became Elijah Muhammad and went on to form uh, the Nation of Islam, which, you know, they kind of have their own mythos about, you know, black people being from the lost tribe of Sabaz. And when we were part of the tribe of Sabaz, we had different powers like telepathy and telekinesis and just a lot of different stuff. They talk about the Yakub myth. That's something that I, I totally don't agree with at all. Uh, I don't think you can really prove that through science, but I think maybe now that particular organization just looks at that as a mythos, just a mythology. So, um, hold on a quick break. And that particular organization just looks at that as a mythology now. So I don't think they really embrace like the, uh, I'm sweating. <laughs> they don't really embrace it as the sound truth anymore when you look at the nation of Islam. So that's something that you have to, you have to look at and that you have to talk about. Um, and so with, with, with Malcolm X, you know, what I found remarkable about, remarkable about him it's not only his impact here in the United States, but abroad as well. You know, when you look at the fact that uh, when he went to Nigeria and he lectured there, there was somebody in the, and I think he was in Lagos, there was somebody in the audience that I guess had booed or whatever. And that guy got almost beat to death and they had to get this man out of there safely because that's how much love Malcolm had in Nigeria. He had that same amount of love in China, Indonesia, Lebanon, Egypt. Uh, he had that same amount of love 
in England as well when he went and lectured at Oxford. Matter of fact, when he was assassinated, there were college students from Oxford and I think a few other universities in England that went out in front of the U.S. embassy and protested uh, what had happened to Malcolm X. You know, there were there were like, you know, uh, people coming out into the streets all over the world when he died. And you look at Malcolm and one of the things he wanted to do is to bring the United States to uh, before the United Nations and bring charges of, of crimes against humanity for the United States treatment of African-Americans. So Malcolm wanted to take it to that level. Also, you had African leaders and, and you had leaders in the Middle East that were willing to fund any movement that Malcolm X wanted to start here in the United States of America. So we look at Malcolm just, you know, kind of as, as this figure here, but Malcolm was really international and he was being watched by the FBI everywhere that he went, you know, and people critique the Spike Lee movie because they're like, well, it didn't have the part with uh, Malcolm going to all these different places and like meeting with Kwame Nkrumah or, for example, uh, Malcolm X met with Fidel Castro at the Teresa Hotel in Harlem. You know, and people are like, why didn't it include that? You know, why didn't it include, uh, you know, the different things that Malcolm did in prison? Like what people, another thing that people don't know about Malcolm is that not only was he astute in African-American history, but Malcolm has studied all types of history. Like when he was in prison, he did lectures on like Chinese history and uh, ancient Egypt and West Africa. Like he was well read on so many different societies and cultures and we really don't capture that part of malcolm x we capture the part where he's an activist we capture the part where he uh had to riff with the nation of islam like we capture all of these things but we don't actually capture the fact that just as much as he was a powerful orator just as much as he was a powerful activist he also was a powerful scholar and a powerful historian as well and we have to remember all of those things about Malcolm. And I just feel, you know, a long for a long time, people wanted to, to, to blame like Louis Farrakhan and people wanted to blame Elijah Muhammad and others for the for the murder of Malcolm X. And, you know, you look at some of the people that were arrested, you know, they were people that were in the temple. But as I get older and I'm being exposed to more information, what I will say is this. This is what I feel comfortable saying. His assassination, from the information I've came into, and like I said, if, if, if you know me, you know, we can talk and, and I'll get a little bit more involved. But this is what I will say. His murder went far deeper than you can imagine. And... Parties that you didn't imagine benefited from it. Keep in mind, I'm going to throw this out there. When Malcolm was out there, Malcolm X really was the reason that the Nation of Islam became popular. Like he, I don't care how people want to put it. Malcolm was the reason that the Nation of Islam became so preponderant. It was under him. I, I, and I know people disagree with me, but it's the truth. It was under Malcolm that that organization really became popular.
Now, here's the other part. When he was also when he was in Harlem and he was lecturing, he was going around and he was grabbing a lot of these young men off of the street and had them join this organization. And one thing I have to commend that organization for the NOI is that you have people that came to them, that came to Elijah Muhammad, that came to Malcolm X, that could not read did not really know how to properly bathe. You had people that were strung out on drugs, people that were career criminals, and they literally cleaned these people up and turned them into business owners, turned them into doctors, turned them into teachers. And so that was, that in itself was remarkable. Te they uh, taught these people how to have a proper dietary plan. These are all things that happen under the nation of Islam. All things, Right. But when Malcolm was out here and when he was lecturing and when he was doing his uh, his thing, we like to say that now. But when he was teaching, it hurt the pockets of organized crime. So as you have more people that were leaving that life behind, that street life, the drug life, the hustler life, it was hurting organized crime. So there is a theory, like I said, what I'll say is this. There are theories that. Multiple parties were in, were working together to stop this gentleman, you know, to stop this this leader. And I'll leave it at that. I want you to go do your own research, you know, because um, no truth barred ain't big yet. So I can't, <laughs> I can't afford to really get, you know, get up, get put up out of here just yet. But uh, I want you to go do your own research on that part. I'm just gonna say it. There were multiple parties that benefited from Malcolm not being here. You're talking about a man that wanted to bring the United States of America up on crimes against humanity for his treatment of African-Americans. You're talking about a man that was messing up the pockets of organized crime in New York City. You're talking about a man that, as J. J. Edgar Hoover said, you cannot allow a black messiah to come and unify black people. And this man could have possibly done that. And what, make, what made Malcolm a lot more dangerous is that once he moved past the NOI, is that he was attracting all types of people to his message. So you're, you're not looking at a guy that can just unite black people. You're possibly looking at a dude that can unite people across color and socioeconomic lines. And when you have that combination, a lot of people don't appreciate your actions and your rhetoric. So that's what I'll say about, you know, Malcolm and his untimely murder and assassination. You know, so I'll say that about him. But all in all, you know, I did. I I, I wanted to just shout out Malcolm X. I wanted to say thank you to him because I don't believe that this corporeal form that we're in is the end all be all. I believe that there's more out here than uh, just um it's more out here than just the physical body. I believe in a soul and the afterlife. So I believe Brother Malcolm is, is listening, watching us. And I hope that all of us can make him proud. I hope all of us can walk, you know, in integrity. I hope all of us can do things that we're helping our community. And I hope we're doing things to make this world a better place. Because I believe when Malcolm is, was alive, the things he did, I truly believe that he was doing to make the world a better place. So I hope that we are doing that. I hope that uh, we can we can live the life of integrity that Brother Malcolm lived. 
And that's what I truly hope. And the last thing I want to touch on with 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 Malcolm X is uh you we have to stop and this is something that bothers me we have to stop letting ego and jealousy make us take out our leaders now i said his demise have multiple causes but one of them being the fact that we had people, and I know I'm sweating like crazy right now, but anyway, we had people that were jealous of, of Brother Malcolm, that he was a phenomenal orator, highly intelligent. He just could connect to people on a different level. And so there were many people that did not like that. And that enmity caused this man to, to lose his life or was one of the causes for this man losing his life. When you have people calling up and, and making bomb threats to his family, trying to put explosive devices in his vehicles. For what? And this is coming from people that claim to be pro-black. And this is leading me into my next point that I, I want to make, and I'm going to wrap up because I said I don't want to go too long tonight. But my final point here is the hypocrisy that we all have. How can you be a black organization and yet you want to end the life of a black man? Even if it's theoretically, even if it's all BS, all fluff, just all talk. Right. And it was another entity that did it. The fact that you want to bring a man's life to an end because he, he spoke out against something that another man said you shouldn't speak out against. That's hypocrisy. We cannot claim, we cannot claim to be pro-black. We cannot claim to be for black people. We cannot claim to be for black liberation. If we're going to practice the same predatory behaviors that every other group that comes to this country practices and inflicts upon us amongst each other. Because then if we're doing that, we're just hypocrites. And then we're part of the problem and we're not part of the solution. Which brings me to my next point. And I'm going to very, really briefly touch on this. The Joe Budden podcast. Um, I don't normally talk about like pop stuff or stuff that's going on in the media or like I'll talk about a current event, but I'm not I don't like talking about those sorts of current events. But the reason why the Joe Budden podcast hit me so heavy is because my ex who I was with actually got me into watching it and then I became a fan on my own and I started to really enjoy the show. And when I look at uh, <clears throat> when I look at Joe Budden and what went down with Rory and Marlon, if you guys follow the podcast, you know the extent of it. But essentially. People were trying to make these two uh, co-hosts look like they were just employees People were trying to make them look like basically like they were peons and they were just riding off Joe's coattails. And the one thing that I noticed that kind of scared me is that when I looked at my Twitter feed and when I looked at uh, Instagram, although I tried to limit my usage of Instagram, when I'm looking at all of these different forums, 
people are just wholeheartedly riding with Joe Budden. And and despite all of the allegations and even the things that he said out of his own mouth to contradict himself. People still were just like obsequious to him and not really worried about empathy to the co-hosts. And that's the thing that really bothered me. But the reason why I even mentioned this in the podcast where I wanted to kind of briefly dedicate it to Malcolm X. The reason why I would even mention this is because you have another instance of a black creator. When he was on Spotify, we listened to him rant and wait and rave. Now, the problem is people said that is an asymmetrical argument because it was different. But here's the core uh, thing. This is the common denominator. You have an artist, you have somebody that's producing content, whether that content is in the form of a song, whether that content is in the form of a blog, whether that content is in the form of a YouTube channel, whether that content is in the form of a podcast, is still somebody with a creative predilection that is creating something from their own ingenuity, from their own aptitude, and yet being treated unfairly, and yet being done dirty by these underhanded contracts, and yet being stolen, having money stolen from them. These are things that Budden all, uh, always complained about. And us as fans, we kind of came together and we got behind him because it was messed up what he was dealing with at Complex. It was messed up uh, what he was dealing with um, at Spotify. The shady deal, I have my own opinion on that. I don't know if I agree with Rod with Button on the shady deal. But we've seen these instances where it was a shitty situation for Button. And we got behind him. I found it ironic that the guy that wanted everybody to get behind him, the guy that wanted to be this, uh, this spearhead for this kind of, you know, avant-garde, you know, new creative class of black folks would then enact predatory practices on his co-hosts. To me, that's just hypocritical. Because if you're going to go that way with it, then you have to stop talking about black excellence. You have to stop talking about you're for the culture because you're not. I bring that up because when I talked about the black organization that supported Malcolm and the hypocrisy, when I'm talking about Joe Budden, the guy that constantly gets up and talking about the culture and black creatives and black this and black that, and then you have a sister on one of your podcasts and you're saying these outlandish comments to her, where is the praise of black women in that moment? When you're talking to Olivia Dope, where is the praise of black women? Seems it's not there. I point this out because as a community, we have a problem where we justify things as long as it equals out to a dollar. And then I could say a society at large is like that. We will justify something if it if it can equal out to a dollar. And I heard people say, oh, well, what happened to Rory and Maul? They just didn't know business. 
they they didn't you know they didn't know this or they didn't know that and that's just business and anybody that had a dissenting opinion in contrast to Joe Button was oh you don't know business but this is my question to everybody everybody that has this sycophantic love with Joe Button everybody that has a sycophantic love with entrepreneurship why do we think just because other groups of people practice backstabbing practice uh you know, predatory contracts, practice stealing money from people, practice creative theft. That's another issue amongst creatives. You have people that come forward and they want to, you know, do stuff, create things. And they're like copying other independent artists and creatives. We have all of this going on, but then we want to turn around and talk about we're for black people. We're for black causes when we're really not. Because you cannot be for a black cause. You cannot be for black creatives if you're going to steal whether it be money or create or creatively or conceptually, whether you're going to put people in, in messed up contracts where they end up getting shorted, you cannot do things like that and then turn around and claim to be for the people and be for the community. And you're trying to push the culture forward because then you just, as they would say, a culture vulture. And that's the problem. We got to eliminate the hypocrisy in our community. And it's a perennial thing. I mentioned earlier W.E.B. Du Bois and Marcus Garvey. W.E.B. Du Bois, A. Philip Randolph, and it was another gentleman I can't think of uh, of his name. They led the, the Garvey Must Go campaign. W.E.B. Du Bois, who's supposed to have been a spearhead and a beacon for African liberation. He was one of the first American sociologists. He got up here and he looked at Garvey and he judged Garvey by Eurocentric standards, talking about his dark skin, his nose, how he looked, how short he was. That's my problem. It's like we have this thing here to want to be like, you know, pro black this. But we still are racist at the end of the day towards each other. We still enact racist things. And this has been going on from back then all the way up until now. So my thing is, anybody that's supporting what Button is doing or trying to justify it, you're part of the problem. If you can see what's going on and seriously justify it, you are part of the problem. Hands down. And like I said, you cannot speak about black culture and black upliftment if you are using these same predatory practices of stealing conceptually, creatively, putting people in messed up contracts, stealing money, treating people that are your colleagues as being expendable. Any of these practices, you automatically checked off the list. You can't talk any more of this pro-black stuff, right? Or this for the culture stuff. Because you're not for the culture and your actions show us that. I want to I want to end this by saying rest in peace to Paul Mooney, one of the comedic geniuses of our time. Paul Mooney wrote for In Living Color. He wrote for uh Richard Pryor. He 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 um disco helped discover people like Robin Williams and Sandra Bernhardt. He was a writer for the Richard Pryor show, one of the funniest men to ever walk the earth. And he was an extremely intelligent man. If you get a chance, definitely go check out, in addition to Paul Mooney's stand-up, go check out uh, Paul Mooney's interviews as well, because not only will you laugh, but you'll learn a lot. 
And so it's a huge loss today that on the birthday of Malcolm X, May 19th, that we lost Paul Mooney as well. Uh, so I want to say rest in power to Paul Mooney. You were a powerful uh, brother. You were a powerful comic. You really changed the face of comedy. You wrote for so many brilliant people. And um, I hope you're living it up, making people laugh in heaven right now, Elder. So uh, a rest in peace. Love you. Rest in no nah, rest rest in power, King. But listen, this has been episode 65 of No Truths Bard. I want to thank you guys for listening. And uh, like I said, next week I I will not be back with an episode because I'll be on the uh, True Talk podcast is based out of London and Wales. So uh, keep an eye out for that. I'll be posting the content on my page as well. Uh, but True Sessions will be out either Friday or Monday at the latest. So either this Friday or Monday, True Session 6 will be back. Next week, I'm going to put out an episode of uh, Hip Hop Opinions that'll get me canceled. That'll be back as well. And I'm trying to think of what else. Oh, and Block Build is uh, coming out in June. So I'm looking forward to that. Thank you once again for following me on this platform. Uh, thank you for subscribing to the YouTube channel. Make sure you share the content. Make sure you comment. Make sure you like. Make sure you follow my Instagram pages, Hoy, H-O-Y-T underscore Kuwaku, K-W-A-K-U underscore Tim is S-T-I-M-M-O-N-S. Also, make sure you follow me on my other Instagram page, which is underscore No Truths Bar Podcast. Once again, I love y'all. Thank you for the support. And take care, and I'll be seeing you guys. Uh, well, the No Truth Bar podcast itself will be back the week after next. Next week, I'll be on another podcast, but True Sessions will be coming. So I'll be back the week after next with episode 66. And next week, I'll be doing the uh, True, True Talk podcast, and True Sessions will be out next week. And episode two of Hip Hop Opinions, that'll get me canceled. Love y'all. Take care. Stay safe. God bless and peace. This has been episode 65 of No Truce Bard. And I want to thank you for supporting this platform. Make sure you follow No Truce Bard on all streaming services. And also make sure you go to the YouTube channel, which is No Truce Bard Podcast. Subscribe, listen, like, comment, and share. Take care. Thank you and peace.